We are joined this afternoon by Mr. Trevor McClure, working for AWA in the LMP3 category and IMSA, doing some TCR work as well in IMSA. So, sir, first off, how are you, and are you recovered from uh, the lack of sleep from, I don't know, was it two weeks ago at this point? I don't even remember when it was. Yeah, man, I'm uh, I'm doing great. I, uh, I think I did finally catch back up to being normal sometime <laughs> around Sunday afternoon. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's always it's such a brutal event, uh, you know, especially being a strategist. I'm really one of the only people that can't take a break and and take a nap or or look off to the side. And, you know, I'm I'm expected to make good decisions after being awake <laughs> for 30 plus hours uh, in the heat of the moment. So it's uh, it's extremely taxing. Uh, but I also, you know, still mustered enough energy to go out and have some, some drinkies with some friends and competitors afterwards at ocean deck. So, uh, it wasn't totally wiped out, but, uh, yeah, I didn't hit the wall as bad this year as I usually do. Like I came back and I was somewhat functional, which is, uh, which is rare. Normally I come back and I'm just dead for three days and then I wake (laughs) up sometime Wednesday or Thursday and I'm like, where are you? Who are your people? And where's my horse? Uh, so at least this year, I think uh, I took better care of myself and you know, I'm feeling good, man. Feeling good. Yeah, I definitely struggled less this year than I, I usually do. I even managed to. So we all we stayed at a hotel near the Orlando airport and I woke up at 4 a.m. and realized when I was heading to the airport, I never set an alarm. I just woke up right on time and uh, I count myself very lucky that that I did, but so you're essentially up Saturday morning whenever you wake up to head to the track until Sunday night. So you don't get a nap. You don't get a break. You're just powering straight through. Is it difficult at, I don't know, 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning to focus? You know, I don't uh, I don't think so. I mean, it, it could possibly be. You know, my, my perception is, is quite distorted on that one, but um, <laughs> I don't. I don't feel it. No. And you know, there are some steps I obviously take to, to make sure that I'm not, you know, completely knackered at four o'clock in the morning, halfway through the race. Um, despite being up at 7 AM Saturday morning, making the team breakfast. And, uh, that's kind of how my 24 hour starts. But, um, you know, yeah, there's, there's lots of things. I mean, I, I cut out, uh, caffeine basically from petite, to whenever I have to pull the trigger sometime during the 24 hour. So I go, so I go full decaf and that really makes a difference. You know, when you, when you get that first Red Bull or cup of coffee midway through the race, it hits different, you know? So that's, uh, that's one of my tricks, but you know, I also like, you know, exercise a bit more in December, January, just kind of get the endurance and the mind right and everything else. So it's, it's a compilation of all those things and also making sure that week of and the week before at the roar, you're not totally strung out and you're getting proper amounts of rest because if you fall behind during the event, you can't catch up the night before and you go into the race screwed. So just recalling from the race, uh, you guys on the 13 car ran into a little bit of an issue after pretty much a perfect race up to that point. Can you kind of t- like refresh the listeners, maybe memory on what happened and kind of give us a little bit of a behind the scenes look at how that changed your race and um, just what's that what's that like from the stand? 
Yeah, it's not the best, uh, not the best thing. Certainly not the best situation to be put in. And, and as you said, I think we were we we're running a pretty well perfect race, uh, like the seventeen car, among everybody else having issues. And you know, it was kind of like, um, you know, before we had our incident, uh, which was a crash. Um, it was looking like the stars were aligning, and you know, you're staying on the box like shit guys we can we can take two of the three podium spots today and uh you know all of our dreams can come true but you know something like that happens and it takes a quarter of a second for everything to go wrong and unfortunately that's uh that's what happened and what happened is we had an incident into the wall turn five fairly hard but it was also deceptively easy like it didn't look that bad on tv and we got back and the car was was all right. We changed tires. We sent it back out. Uh, little did we know that it bent the wing upright just enough to start awkwardly loading the hardware that keeps the wing and the upright attached. And at some point, about an hour and a half after the incident, the wing failed and it was just the hardware. So not knowing it was a terminal issue, we replaced the hardware, lost a couple laps didn't have to go back to the garage, but sent it back out. And about an hour later, it happened again. And that's when I made the call to just wholesale fix everything. We hadn't made our brake change at that point either. So literally, we just did everything that we needed to mechanically to finish the race in the garage at that one point, um, which was tough because I think that that cost us about 40 minutes. And we ended up going a net like 26 laps down uh, to our sister car in the 17 that eventually won. So... Uh, again, not ideal, but it was also one of those scenarios where I was there like a, a cheerleader on top of the box going, guys, everybody's falling out. People are breaking cars left and right. We know that our car is now mechanically straight. It was perfect going into the race. And we could still get a podium being 26 laps down. So we continued to forge ahead and um, we clawed back a, a fair number of laps. I'm still working on my, my strategy report, but I think think we ended up getting back something like 14 laps which broke my record from last year of 11 so nice wow. we certainly never gave up but uh you're right it was it was one of those things it's it's a hard decision and it's a hard position to be put in um especially with all the other moving parts that are going on and everything else that can possibly go wrong um to have to make those decisions you know is at that point in the race too i was short on drivers because i told half of my driver core to go to sleep because they weren't scheduled to be in the car for hours and hours and hours. And then I had to call an audible and that sort of throws off the whole driver lineup. And now, you know, those guys get upset because they don't get as much rest as they expected or, or, or all these things. So one little incident in that race can throw a wrench in not just where you're running or your track position, but literally every other facet of, uh, of the race. So it, it was tough, but, um, I think we proved like we did last year that we are not going to be the first team to give up. We're going to be the last. And, you know, we got a decent result out of it, uh, all things considered. So that was kind of uh, my perspective on it, but certainly not the situation of the day that we wanted to have. So moving on from just your, your, your car and your team, and we'll come back up, come back to that at some point. Everybody's favorite topic, at least on social media, is the Porsche GTD cars and BOP. 
So obviously you are you're much more of an expert than than me or Frenchie or probably most people who are listening. What the hell happened? I don't even know how to ask that question other than that. That's a really, really good question because I don't have a straight <laughs> answer for it. And I think at the core of it, nobody's going to have a straight answer for it. But I can tell you what I think happened. And this is yeah. a topic I've I've almost lost friendships this week uh, discussing <laughs> this particular topic. And I'm not even I've one seen with, some of it. with skin in the game on this one. But uh, uh, the reality and the fact of the matter is... Uh, Porsche's got a new car. The The motor's a little bigger. It went from a 4 liter to a 4.2 this year. And, you know, they were in full force, all of the Porsche teams, for this December BOP test. Same with all of the GTP cars. And inexplicably, sometime between Petite last year with the 4 liter motor and the Roar this year with the 4.2 liter motor, the restrictor, the air restrictor, shrunk 32%. So that is one of those where if you change something in an engine by one third, you're going to have a massive impact on the performance of the vehicle. Even though the, yeah. the engine itself got 5% bigger in terms of displacement, the the imbalance there of the 40 millimeter restrictor that was in at Petite for the 4 liter versus the 33 that was in it at the Roar is just such a massive deviation that I can't say that the results of the Porsche's performance were anything short of expected. It was absolutely no surprise there that they're that slow on the straight with that sort of restrictor in there proportionate to the displacement. So, sure. um, you know, I don't know what's gone on there, and I can't comment on whether or not it was a nefarious plot by someone high up in the one Daytona building ensuring X manufacturer X driver was going to win the race and yada, yada, yada. But what I can tell you is that that is such a deviation that you don't need to know the details of the technical documents of the data that was collected of all of these things to know that there's a problem. And that was evident given the, the Porsche's performance. I mean, Lawrence Van Thor uh, got outperformed by all but five amateur drivers in cars outside of Porsches that were in Ouch. all of the GTD. And that was that's all, that's bronze and silver. If, if he were to do that under normal circumstances, he would be fired immediately as a platinum Porsche factory driver, <laughs> you know? And he still got his job. So that indicates that it wasn't him that was, that was the problem there. But... I mean, you really look at the the average pace and and everything. It was very clear that that car was down on power. And you look at the restrictor size versus uh, historical restrictor size for similar size engines, and you realize there's there's a big problem. And again, like I said, I'm, I I wasn't surprised by that. And at the end of the day, somebody made a mistake. I mean, it's like if a roofer built a roof 32% differently than it was engineered or or the architect drew it he would still be doing time in prison. So it's one of those, it's it's such an egregious deviation from where it should be or where the expectation is that um, somebody somewhere down the line made a mistake. That's my take on it. So kind of getting back to, I guess, just your race specifically, I wanted to ask you about the other side of your role that I, at least that I know about, um, 
and that's obviously in the Michelin Pilot Challenge series. And so, I mean, you're on this number 61 Road Shagger Racing Audi, am I right? That's correct. And so Road Shagger! You, you pulled a win out. Uh, <laughs> how was that for you guys? I mean, you won, what, was it Sebring in 2021 was the last win, if I yeah, read, I think that's read the correct. stats correctly? Yeah, I think that's that's the only win I haven't been with Road Shaker. Oh, really? I have been with them since kind of IMSA day one for them. They've done a lot of stuff in NASA and everything for, for years. But yeah, I was kind of, kind of with them since the beginning in IMSA. But in 21, um, I took a strategy only role uh, with AWA, um, which is what I've continued on, obviously, with, uh, with the LMP3 cars we moved up. But um, in years prior, I was spotting for both Road Shagger and AWA, one TCR, one GS simultaneously um, in Michelin Pilot. And, you know, by happenstance, I also ended up calling strategy for Road Shagger for those those couple of years. And, you know, pat on my, pat on my back to myself, no other TCR car in those two years saw the podium more than us. So I think I was, uh, I was doing okay with my radio and my cell phone in the middle of a field or on top of a roof. Um but certainly when we made the change to G- from GS to LMP3, that sort of freed me up in Michelin Pilot. So I was able to go back to, uh, to Road Shagger and continue our quest to overthrow the imp- evil empire that is Brian Herta Autosport. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we've, we've got a good start going, on, going this year. And it was the same start that we had in 2020 prior to the pandemic. And that was um, another host of BOP-related drama and... Uh, excessive deviation from performance expectations that we had that year. Um, but absolutely it's, it's, it's great to win any race at Daytona, whether it's the four hour, the 24 hour, uh, you know, a WRL race, you know, it's, it's just a cool place to win a race. And, uh, for road shagger and, and myself, that was our second in TCR. My third, I won it in 20 with, uh, AWA as well. And in, in the GS McLaren, um, but yeah, with road shagger, you know, we, we expect to win at Daytona because we either put the car in the wall or win the race. Um, <laughs> and that's, uh, that's how it's been for, for many years now. And thankfully, uh, the car stayed out of the wall this year, but everybody was pumped. We had a lot of personnel changes, um, weren't super confident that we were going to be as good in pit stops, which is one of our secret weapons, um, it's not very, not that much of a secret. We've kind of been the benchmark in TCR in terms of pit stop speed over the years, but um, sort of a lot of unknowns, a lot of new people floating around and everything else. And to uh, continue to top the timesheets on pit stops and come away with a win, especially at Daytona, was uh, just a fantastic way for us to to start the season. And you know, we're we're going for one singular goal this year and that's to win the championship we should have had in 19 or 20 so that's where we are what did you think about the rolex this year as a whole with the new gtp class and obviously a much bigger field than there's been in quite some time so what did you think of the race and part two i remember you and i chatting about this at some point there's you know, 61 cars is kind of, I think, what you described as kind of the upper limit of possible cars on track in this day and age. Why is that? I, f- I don't remember if we actually talked about why. So there are a number of reasons why modern day IMSA or sports car races can only have 61 cars. 
And a lot of that comes down to, you know, the primary driving factor of that is the pit lane space. It's makes sense. It's unavoidable. You have to have a pit lane that's adequate for these cars to stop during a 24 hour race. You can't kind of, you know, you can't say, Oh, we're not going to have pit stops in a 24 hour race. So we can have 80 cars (laughs) like they did in the old days. It, It just doesn't work that way. And there's been an exceptional number of, um, I'm trying to find a kind word to describe them, but, 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 but moronic objections to why we can only have 61 cars. And I, I had a very popular post in one of the Facebook groups that was basically just a screenshot of a four car pit stop during the 2022, 24 hour. And it was three LMP two cars and a GT car. None of them were in their box straight. None of them got in there straight. <laughs> None of them could get out of their pit boxes. They couldn't get out of each other's way. They were, they either had another car or the pit wall in their way. So if you continued to watch that pit stop sequence from the screenshot that I posted, you were seeing multiple guys on the pit lane putting skates under their air jacks. They're jacking up the car, putting on a skate under it, jacking it down, rotating the ass end around, jacking it back up, removing the skate, removing the air jack, and sending the car. That's <laughs> if they were the lead car in the train. And, you know, going back and watching the the broadcast for this year's race, it was the same story. You saw a lot of cars that were just in each other's way. And if you have 61 cars, you get 20 foot pit stalls. That's it. That's all every competitor down the line had. And an LMP three car is almost 17 feet long. So if you're not very good at math, that leaves a little bit less than (laughs) two feet on either end of the car for us to be legally within our pit box. And then we have to work in that. We've got we've got obviously guys running around with tires, with air jacks, with drivers and driver changes. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on in that very small contained space. So if you if you went to the old school and the absolute maximum number of cars that have ever started a Daytona 24 hour are 82. If you put 82 cars out there today, you would have sub 15 foot pit stalls. You wouldn't be even be able to get a GT car in the stall legally without encroaching on someone else's ahead or behind. And there's just a lot of stuff going on and a lot of room that's needed. You know, we're not running 13-foot-long Porsches anymore en masse in the 24-hour Daytona. And there's no other way around it. You know, there were some guys in that, that Facebook group discussion that, you know, once we cycled through the the people who had nothing to say, there were some good <laughs> suggestions. And, you know, there were discussions about, well, why can't we do a pit lane on the back straight? And I outlined all of the, the logistical reasons that would be a bad idea. Um, everything from you would have undue advantage during pass arounds and wave arounds for the cars on the back straight versus the cars in the, the traditional pit lane. You would have to build... Uh, a permanent wall that's now very close to the the track that NASCAR uses. Yeah. And NASCAR is not going to want a permanent concrete wall there. That's how you kill guys in circle track <laughs> races. Um, yep. And it's the same with extending the current pit lane because there is a sea of asphalt uh, on the entry that we use, but they befall the same issues. I mean, there's it's a racetrack and it is a fantasy land that you know I'm fortunate enough to make my my living in, but there's still 
limited by things like fire code. And that's why we have the widths and the distances that we do on the cold side of the pit wall. You know, we've got our, our, our tents and everything, but we have room behind them that we're not allowed to put anything. We're not even allowed to park our, our golf carts or our tuggers or anything like that because they have to have a fire lane. So you have a minimum width of the cold side of the pit wall that you have. And then you have a minimum width for your working lane, your, all these other lanes. So sure. There's a sea of asphalt there on the entry of pit lane, but you consume all of that. And now you start to introduce new safety issues by trying to extend that pit lane and still, you know, give people proper working area, but also legal working area as it pertains to, to fire lanes and things like that. So there's really not any way to expand upon that. And the reality is, I don't think that there's, there's 80 quality entries. There's not a market for 80 quality entries for the 24 hour Daytona. True. I mean, this year, you know, LMP3 gets a lot of flack and we're going to uh, to suss that out and dispel a lot of myths regarding that class and yes. why it does exist and why it should remain in WeatherTech. But uh, the reality is that this, this wait list that IMSA was, was openly advertising in numerous articles from themselves and, and outside sources, I heard that list was only like seven deep. And a lot of those were... LMP3 cars that didn't make it. The, the primary one that I heard that a lot of people use as an argument against having LMP3 cars because they take up space, quote unquote, was KCMG, you know, the, the Porsche team that got, uh, that was the short end of the stellar battle we had in GTD Pro last year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They got denied an entry. But the reality is IMSA has a hierarchy of how they issue entries. And the reality is KCMG did one race last year. So they are not any more entitled to an entry for Daytona or anything else than multiple full season entries in prior years. You know, that makes sense from a business standpoint. If you've got 60 teams that have run full seasons with you prior, you're going to give priority to them no matter what name is attached to the one-off deal. And the fact of the matter is... Kenny Habul's Sun Energy 1 got the 61st entry, and so they were a one-off as well, and all things being equal between them and KCMG, that tells me that Sun Energy 1 got their entry in sooner, and that was the only thing that got them there. So for KCMG to not get an entry, and that somehow be LMP3's fault, is complete bullshit, to, to put it frank. So I realize we probably should have started with this, but that's on me and, and host for not asking this um, for at least our listeners. But I wanted to get a sense of your racing background. How, I mean, we talked a little bit about kind of touched on your roles currently, but how did you start out in racing and kind of what brought you to this point where you are now? So how I got to this point is all a complete blur and I'm still not sure how <laughs> I bullshit my way to where I am. Uh, but no, I, I, I started out, um, and I think I've, I've said this uh, probably even on this podcast, it's been a couple of years since I've been on now, mm-hmm. I think, I think we were, fuck, I think we were pre-pandemic yeah. then, but, uh, definitely before yeah, it was the me, end of 2019, before yeah, I came on oh, as a host, 19, it's been four years. It was, it was before, it was either before or after the first Rolex I covered in person, which was 2020. So yeah. three, you know, somewhere around there. Either way, what made me feel old, Mike? Thanks. 
like I said, it's Same. all been, it's all been a blur. It's it's all blur. But uh, no, I started out. I uh, I got interested in motorsport because, and I'm dating myself here. Uh, about the time I was able to get a driver's license, I got hooked on the Need for Speed Two video game on PlayStation One. So okay, uh, that that kind of got me into to wanting to know okay, what's motorsport? And of course, the McLaren F1 was the the badass car in that game, and then one thing led to another you realize that f1 is actually a sport and mclaren's a team it's not a road car manufacturer necessarily then i started paying attention to that and then started reading books and i just so happened to live about an hour from this place called vir Mm -hmm. uh, in virginia which is i love virginia actually oh nice whereabouts Uh, right outside dc okay i was born in falls church so okay i used to live there with me Perfect. Well, uh, I I sincerely apologize for your your living arrangements up there. It's a terrible place now, <laughs> in my professional opinion. But uh, yeah, no, I grew up around VIR and uh, was fortunate enough to have one of my very good friends from high school. His dad was in flagging and communications because his dad was in flagging and communications in SCCA and years ago and kind of went down the line. And I, I got asked if I wanted to go to the racetrack like hell yeah i'll go and that was like the second or third race that vir had when they reopened was mm-hmm. an scca race and i never forget my first corner i ever worked was turn eight that's driver's right midway through the uphill asses and i got to see a pretty spectacular crash there uh, in front of me which is kind of cool um the guy was okay so i can i can say it was kind of cool um but that that's kind of what got me hooked. And then I, you know, I started doing some flagging communication stuff pretty regularly. And then I mustered up the courage to, uh, to ask a guy who had about nine Miatas, uh, one of these SCCA races, uh, if he needed some help. And it, as it were, he was running a bunch of cars in the 12 hour summit point and, you know, two months time or whatever. And uh, I ended up going up there and just kind of started working SCCA endurance races until I met Chris Mitchum, who is the, the race director for Action Express currently. Uh, he had his own team for a while, which I was employee number one, was there until the bitter end. And uh, yeah, kind of all, all of the rest of it was history. But um, I've, through my travels, I've done everything in a professional capacity short of driving the cars on a racetrack and driving the trucks to get the cars to the racetrack. So everything else I've done, I've been a fuel chief, uh, tire chief, uh, strategy, I've been a spotter, won a bunch of stuff uh, as a spotter before spotting was cool or mandated as it is now in IMSA. So, um, you know, big shout out to them for for finally coming around to making spotters mandatory. But, uh, you know, it's a few years too late. I could have uh, had a much higher day rate if I was necessary <laughs> instead of having to sell uh, my benefits package, uh, having me on your radio. But uh yeah, I mean, I've I've done everything, and I, I still kind of kind of do to a capacity. You know, when we go testing, there's obviously not a real big capacity for having a strategist for testing. Um, but you know, I'll jump in and do tires. I'll jump in and fix X, Y, and Z. I'm not a very good mechanic, uh, admittedly. I'm like a, a really crappy number three at best. <laughs> but uh, if you see me with wrenches in my hands uh, under the hood of a car, under the engine, cover, start praying you know it's a really, really bad day because the team around me has run out of options. Um, but yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've been around, I've done a lot of stuff, I've seen a lot of things. Uh, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm quite good at, uh, at solving problems that tend to crop up at the racetrack too. Um, so yeah, I, I've, I've, I've been, 
here, there, and everywhere. But I've got uh, I've got literal thousands of hours of intently watching cars go around racetracks, whether it's spotting, doing strategy, uh, or just paying attention. You know, so it's uh, very fortunate to have the the upbringing by fire that I did because it's it's made me a better all arounder because of it. So with everything you've done and currently do, I know pr- people probably ask you like, all right, what do you like to do the most? What do you like to do the least? Mm. Pretty much anything that involves manual labor nowadays. I, um, <laughs> I don't like Same. doing that. No, it's, um, Oh, I'd like doing the least. Uh, normally like packing up is, is usually that's the light at the end of the tunnel, but I really dislike unloading and unloading despite the fact I'm good at it and I still end up doing it. Um, uh, but you know, it's, uh, you know, I, I don't think that there's a particular thing I, that's like so abhorrent that I'm just like, I'm going to quit if I ever have to do this again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'll, you know, I'll, I'll stew on that for a minute. If something comes into my head, okay. I'll, uh, I'll let you know, but yeah, again, wrenching is is not my strong suit. So, um, unless I have a good support system above me, in that case, uh, I, I do tend to get uncomfortable because it's you know a really, really, really good mechanic is a really, really incredible skill to have. And I'm I'm mechanically inclined. I like I build things. I build stuff around the house. I do this, that, and the other. But um, I can't hold a candle to even a decent mechanic. So, um, yeah, I think that's that's probably the the least confidence I have in a particular job. And I think because Fair. of that, that would be something that I'm not happy to do. But at the end of the day, you know, I've I've been in situations where we've wrecked a bunch of cars. We're short people, and I got to jump in. Or um, in the case of like uh, Mitchum with our ST BMW 128s back in the day, if you can remember that far back. Um, we had a problem with uh, with popping motors, and it didn't matter who built them; they were just not suited for uh, for race purposes. And um, you know, someone who no longer works there, in their infinite wisdom post merger, uh, decided to allow the Porsche Cayman S into ST. So it was like by far and away like the highest base horsepower. It was the only car that was allowed in the class that came stock with multi piston brakes, and you know, IMSA at the time, their tech department didn't know their ass from a hole in the ground from all of the parts that were on it. So naturally all of the Porsche Cayman teams had their engines wicked up, never got caught. And then they had a slew of 911 GT3 parts on that never got caught. So of course it elevated the performance. And, you know, we had these, these ultra low emissions commuter car engines basically. And we're trying to get like 60 extra horsepower out of a naturally aspirated straight six and we were blowing them up. So we got really good at changing them. And uh, because I'm a, I'm a, I'm a mid to, to smaller stature guy and I had uh, I had the, the narrow arms to get in there, I was the one that could undo the two gearbox bolts to get the engine free without having to drop the entire gearbox. So being able to get these two precariously placed bolts took about 45 minutes off of the engine swap job. So that was like, that was my one like claim to fame where it was like, I got this guys. Don't worry. Stand back. 
give me the 15 mil wrench. I'll be out in a second. So that was, uh, that's my one cool mechanic story where I actually did something good and it wasn't a, a concern for everybody else watching. Go ahead, Frenchie. So you alluded to this just a few minutes ago, but I wanted to get into a little bit. You're not, I'm not saying to justify LMP3 to us because Mike and I have been critics of the class before and, um, you know, maybe not knowing full well, like with your experience of actually being, you know, working in that class. But I mean, it looks better than I remember it did when they first entered. But so what is your on the ground kind of, you know, if you could give an objective verdict on LMP3 and the quality of the drivers that you've seen and worked with close up, uh, what would you say? So I can tell anyone who wants LMP3 out or doesn't think it belongs exactly how wrong they are in any conversation, 100%. The, the only objection to that class being there that I don't have a retort for is one of my photographer friends said he simply doesn't like the way the cars look. Hmm. And there's nothing I can do about that. But that also doesn't justify the class not being there. But the, the kernel of the matter and what never gets discussed and what's what's you know fairly outside of the scope of the typical fan are are a couple of things one lmp3 cars are severely homologated and i mean imsa doesn't deviate from homologation at all to the point where the seat belts in our car are the cheapest seat belts on the entire planet that have an FIA stamp. You can get them for about 121 bucks a set. They're garbage. We can't change them. So you have guys running chump car out there, $500 cars that are allowed to have better driver restraints in their car than our LMP3 cars are. And that's not even like a cost concern. I mean, the, the best race belts in the world are 700 bucks a set. You know, we had a 12% price increase on Michelin tires this year. We spend more than $700 per set now than we did last year. So $700 per set of harnesses, not a big deal. But it goes further than that. We are the only class in WeatherTech that is not allowed telemetry. We're the only class that can sit on the box and not see every metric coming from the car in real time. And so... That puts us in a precarious position because we have a driver rating limited class, meaning we have to have at least a bronze or a silver under 30 in the car. Yeah. And, you know, they're not always the best cut out for relaying information. And, mm -hmm. and it's like the homologation and the standardization go so deep to ridiculous links that we're not even allowed to change the graphic user interface on the dashboard which is like a standard and free feature of any race system, including ones that, you know, a friend of mine makes out of Raspberry Pis and $60 Android tablets. You know, you should be able to change that. So we can't even as a team optimize the data and the information that's in front of the driver. It's all standardized. And so to get to some things that we might need to see, they have to do this very intricate button combination to get to a mechanics page and they're doing this while going 100 150 180 miles an hour on a racetrack 
And it's not, it's not the best situation. So if we had the same tools that all of the other WeatherTech cars had, we would be in a much better position to mitigate a lot of these cautions that are caused by LMP3. And, uh... Have you ever wanted to know how to win a Formula One Grand Prix? I mean, really know. Know about the driver tactics from the cockpit, the strategy calls from the pit wall, and even the mind games in the paddock. There's a lot more that goes into winning a Grand Prix than just 90 minutes of racing. So every week on the F1 Strategy Report, we're taking a deep dive into the decisions that shape every result. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato, and every week I'm joined by an expert guest from the paddock to talk through the big calls that won the race and the missteps that resulted in bitter defeat. Before every race, we'll look back at the previous year's result and consult the current form guide, and we'll be in your feed after every Grand Prix dissecting the outcome and what it means for the championship. So for your regular hit of Formula One analysis, subscribe to the F1 Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast on the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name's Michael Laminato, and I'll catch you after the chequered flag. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato, and this is Pit Pass F1, a brand new podcast that'll take you closer to the action of the world's most prestigious motorsport. From Monaco to Miami and Australia to Azerbaijan, Pit Pass F1 is on the ground and has you covered. Esteemed F1 journalists Julianne Serasoli and Chris Medland will take you inside the sport every round. They'll keep you up to date with the latest news breaking in Formula One and the most influential views shaping the world of Grand Prix racing. Every Friday, we'll be bringing you a track guide and race preview, and Chris and Drew will be in your feed every morning from Saturday through to Monday to keep you up to date on all the day's action on and off the track. So if you want to be in the know on the latest in Formula One, subscribe wherever you get your favourite podcasts and visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Pit Pass F1, a brand new show for Evergreen Podcasts. Um, you know, I did a really in-depth analysis on full course yellow periods last year in IMSA, in WeatherTech at least, and it was incredibly interesting because you know, one of the one of the few metrics a fan can can identify in terms of the quality of a class is how many full course yellows they cause. Mm-hmm. That was a big thing with the the prototype challenge class in years past, and they were just caution fests. And so because of that class and because a lot of people falsely see LMP3 as the new IMPC class, they already have this misnomer in their head that, oh, it's it's the new one. They cause cautions. Well, the reality is, you know, and I'm not throwing anybody in the bus, so I'm not going to to say anyone specifically. But there was one team that entered 37 percent of the races last year in LMP3 and caused 50 percent of the entire season's cautions. LMP3. I'm pretty sure I know exactly who you're talking about. Yeah. And so, <laughs> so, but you, but you look at that and you go, you take, you take that one outlier away. Mm-hmm. Now, all of a sudden, LMP3 in terms of cautions caused is tied with DPI, only second to GTD Pro, who was responsible for exactly zero cautions last year. Mm-hmm. So, and you look further into that, how many of those full course yellows were mechanical or electrical problems? Well, AWA had a few. We had one electrical issue with the engine. We had one axle failure. Core Autosport, the champions, who are no slouch of a team and nobody in any universe would say they're a bad team. They had the same number of mechanical failures as we did at two. 
And all four of those, we would have been able to either identify the problem and have a solution ready instead of having to get data from the driver and their limited dashboard if we had telemetry. And a few of those, you, you further go in depth and like we're left with like three or four caution periods. Two of those were incident avoidance, you know, where a driver had the choice to hit a tire wall or hit a fellow competitor and T-bone them. They made the right choice by going into the tire wall. And then there was only really one instance of bad driving, and that was because a guy that probably didn't belong in an LMP3 car got spooked going into turn one at Sebring because a DPI was leaving pit lane perpendicular to him. I mean, it happens to everybody. It happened to Philippe Nasser, and Philippe Nasser's man. So I'm not trying to hang that that driver out to dry, but you really like analyze the problems that LMP3 has, and you realize that a lot of them could be mitigated with proper tools, which aren't expensive. I mean, telemetry is is not the fifty to hundred thousand dollar proposition it used to be. We could put adequate LMP3 car uh, telemetry in these LMP3 cars for about what we'd spend on four or five sets of tires. So I'd be happy to double stent a few sets of tires during the middle of the night in Daytona and save enough money to then put a telemetry system in the car. And, you know, it's not an issue of cost. It's just an issue of nobody wants to touch it. And I think that's that's absolutely unfair to the rest of us. Um, but further than that, the solution for LMP3, and I think you alluded to it, was outside of the mechanical issues that everybody had, the LMP3 wasn't that bad in terms of driving. There was one driver that... Uh, that spun a lot and was, was quite off the pace, but he didn't ruin anyone else's race and didn't cause a bunch of cautions. He was just kind of off track and spinning through the grass. But outside of that, the driving standards were exceptionally higher this year. And I think the fix and part of the problem is LMP3 is the most financially accessible class in WeatherTech. It costs the least to run the 24-hour, costs the least to run the season. So naturally, you're going to see people that want to give WeatherTech a go end up in LMP3 cars versus GTD cars because of the, the financial accessibility. And I think the fix to that is IMSA needs to be more proactive and strict with the standards of teams and drivers they allow into LMP3. You know, there was a case where there was one gentleman who was entered in LMP3. He was in for the roar, but he was removed for the race because he was running slower than GS cars. So it was about 13 seconds off the pace, like not even in the ballpark. And in my opinion, he should have never been allowed to run in WeatherTech at all. If he wants to try LMP3, that's why we have the VP series. But that series exists in a format and a place where the LMP3 drivers and teams that are currently in WeatherTech don't want to be. I mean, Riley's not going to go to VP Challenge if you took LMP3 out tomorrow. Neither would we. Neither would Sean Creech. Neither would any of these guys. We're, we're there to, to win the race. And, um, you know, so I think that's that's the fix, is they have to be more discerning with who they allow in the category because it is so easily accessible. And, you know, I'm fine. I'm fine with limiting that class to nine or 10 entries. There's, there's no, no big need to have more because we, we do have a healthy enough GT field. We have a healthy enough LMP2 field and we have a healthy enough GTP field that we don't need to let all these LMP3 cars in. It should be limited to 
proven efforts that are quality and proven drivers that are quality. And, you know, I think, I think that at Daytona, we at least displayed that we're there because LMP3 or LMP2 rather, they took a lot of the heat off of us. A lot of that significantly reduced in their vehicle performance, but there are significantly more instances of bad driving for LMP2, not just at Daytona this year, but over the course of the entire season last year than there was in LMP3. And because they were slower, that actually created the interesting situation of bronze drivers in LMP2 holding up gold drivers in LMP3 cars. And that is something that we've been lambasted for, especially by, by GT drivers, is when on restarts, and it's no, no other condition on the track other than restarts, that you've got a bronze driver in an LMP3 car, and right behind him at the green flag is a platinum factory driver in a GTD car. And right away, you're comparing the two as, as apples to oranges. I mean, there's only about three seconds of performance difference between the fastest LMP3 driver and the fastest GTD driver. So it's not a shock when the performance gap in LMP3 is about three seconds from fast guy to bronze guys that there is that interaction. But what a lot of people don't realize, GT drivers included is LMP3 doesn't have ABS. GTD does. So naturally, when you're going into turn one of, a, of an opening lap, GTD driver, he just has to smash the ever-living shit out of his brake pedal. He doesn't have to <laughs> finesse it at all. Whereas if we do that, we lock all four of them up and we end up in a wall and yeah. we cause a crash, which is not what we want to do. The other side to that is the LMP3 develops front tire temperature uh like a glacier it is so <laughs> slow and it's such a problem that we're the only category in any of imsa's series that has mandated different tire compounds on the front and the rear we have soft michelins on the front we have medium michelins on the rear and that's to help mitigate the fact that front tire temperature develops really really slow in these cars so that makes it even worse for, for the gentleman driver, especially if we're coming off of a, a pit stop during a full course yellow, and there's not really been an adequate opportunity to get a lot of tire temperature in the fronts. Now, all of a sudden, you got a, a bronze driver on cold tires with no ABS, and you've got absolute killers who make multiple six figures a year to drive race cars in cars with ABS that do develop tire temperature, and the outcome's not shocking. But the crazy thing is, two or three laps into that stint, that LMP3 driver is gone and never to be seen again. And these issues that GT drivers continue to bring up, uh, that's not an issue when the gold drivers are in the car. We have the super silvers, the, the quick young kids in the LMP3 cars. They're gone. They're multiple seconds faster than those gentlemen or the uh, pro drivers in the GTD cars. So we have one particular scenario on track where there's this, this negative interaction and that's all everybody hampers on. And it's like, that dissolves after a couple laps. And even this year, you look at some of the restarts, even the gentleman drivers uh, were doing much better with that and not getting in the way. They were just driving away, which is what they should do. And again, that goes back to being more discerning with who you allow in this particular series, in these particular cars. If they can't keep up and they can't drive away from a guy in a car that's three seconds a lap slower, irrespective of who's in it, they probably shouldn't be in the series. So I think your explanation is beyond convincing. Uh, and kind of one of the main points I take from that is probably myself included, if I try to step out of my own head, 
but I think it seems like fans in general are just people who watch the sport without much insider knowledge of a certain class, particularly when they see any kind of mistake or, you know, aggressive driving or something like that from a name on the screen that they don't recognize. That's not somebody who, like you mentioned, is a, a platinum guy with, you know, a factory history. They don't let it go as easily. I mean, would you agree with that? Basically that, you know, the LMP three gets scapegoated almost in a way because these guys are the gentleman drivers coming in who we may not be as familiar with, but I mean, you can see plenty of, we see DPI guys doing, or not DPI anymore, GTP guys doing, you know, pretty awful driving standards sometimes. And it just gives them a pass because it's the, the top class and we respect those names. Well, yeah, 100%. And I mean, it's, you know, it, it happens all the time. I mean, we, we got as, as a class in LMP3, we got lambasted at the driver's meeting. We actually got held over after the driver manager meeting at most sport detention because of what happened at weather at uh, Watkins Glen the week before. And that was, again, that goes back to, you know, there were two engine failures in LMP3, two incident avoidances. And we caused a yellow because our driver had the brake bias in the wrong place after a caution and after a driver change or after a, a tire change. And, you know, I stood up in that meeting and was like, if we had telemetry, we would avoid it all but two of those. Because I can't, I can't tell my driver, I can't tell where my driver's got brake bias settings like everybody else in the, the pit lane does. If I see that as we're going to a restart, it's like, hey, brake bias forward, two clicks, get it off the rear so you don't lose the rear end when you go to smash the pedal. And engine failures typically don't just come out of nowhere. You see them developing on data, whether it's a loss of oil pressure or anything else. Whereas LMP3, we just have to kind of go till it blows up and drops oil all over the track, like the uphill S's, for example. And then it causes all these problems and it ruins the race. Whereas, you know, if we have telemetry, these teams can go, oh, we're losing oil pressure. It's like back it down, engine off, find a safe haven cutout. And they can deal yeah. with that problem without throwing a rod through the block and not going yellow. We can keep it green. Mm -hmm. So to have that and then the the flip side that made me chuckle as that most sport race went on is dpi made bigger asses of themselves than lmp3 did the week before at watkins Glen. yeah and they were all over the place they were wrecking into other class cars i mean riley could you know you could argue that riley lost the lmp3 championship last year because they got punted by a dpi in turn four which they absolutely did they issued blame to the dpi and those guys were driving on each other they were dropping tires on the racetrack bodywork I think one of them backed into a wall and caught fire at one point, uh, turn nine. And so you're right. Nobody, there was no uproar for DPI drivers driving like that mm -hmm. and causing those problems. But the week before with easily preventable and mitigated issues, LMP three got completely shit on. And that was, that was with two LMP two drivers nearly putting Jeff Westfall in the hospital at the toe of the boot because they were driving like assholes and basically ending Peregrine's racing season because they couldn't get a car in time to run Mosport. So if you get a goose egg in IMSA with their participation point system, you're, you're out for the season. There's no way you can do anything if you end up with a goose egg for even one race. So nobody talked about that. Nobody talked about the driver standards that have absolutely no place on any racetrack ever. Just two guys with egos too big to fit in the car 
end up taking out a GT guy as an innocent bystander because they can't sort their shit out. And P3 gets shit on. I don't think that's fair. And I don't think it's a fair assessment. And that's something that, as you keyed into, the fans get so little of the picture. They get what they see on TV, what they hear from commentators, which, like the news articles they read, it's always sunny side up. Nobody goes hey here's how it is it's always like here's the here's the best part of everything (coughs) or excuse me or we're going to spin this bad thing to make it look good you know so the information stream that that is accessible to most people who are watching from the outside in is very limited and it's very skewed and so it's very difficult and you know I, i sympathize with this when i when i talk to people about these sorts of things is you're getting so little of the picture you have no idea let me sh- let me show you a little bit more of it to help you understand and you know that's one of the big things with lmp3 again there's there's false pretenses and assumptions going into it and people don't have the data and they don't look at it objectively and they just assume that oh they're they're bad because they cost all these yellows in the six hour but uh, dpi does the same thing and wrecks people the next race and it's it's fine they're fine they're factory drivers. They know what they're doing. It's like, yeah, they, they know what they're doing. That's why they're running into each other. They're trying to get an extra bit of position <laughs> out of the other guy. But, uh, but yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that there's, uh, it's just, it's, it's an unfair position that everybody puts LMP3 in. And to date, including executives in IMSA, I have not gotten a good counter argument to why LMP3 should not be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hopefully this will shed some light on that for people listening. So, so too. Kind of expanding on what Frenchie said, and I'll make this my last question here. The other argument I heard or point I heard, and I don't remember who told me, I apologize if it was you, was that, like, let's just say, you know, like, okay, no more LMP3. These gentlemen drivers and, and whatnot and, and guys who are, you know, bringing money or et cetera will just put their money in an LMP2 car or something and be in a faster car, and maybe that could potentially cause more issues obviously driving standard is not really the issue but if you put them in an lmp2 car with that money if there's no lmp3 car would it end up being i guess hypothetically speaking even worse yes 100 percent. and that goes back to existing data that we have on lmp2 driving standards on cautions caused by lmp2 cars spins happening from lmp2 cars and now with their reduced performance that's artificially reduced, so GTP retains their superiority, something we didn't need with DPI, it makes the cars harder to drive. And they're so slow now. Again, as I said, there were there were times where my gold driver in a P3 car was being held up by gentlemen in P2 cars. But the P2 cars, without a massive toe down the straight, can't drive around P3 cars anymore at Daytona. So now you have these precarious situations where these guys in carbon brake cars, which are extremely difficult to drive versus our LMP3 steel brakes like GT cars or anything else most people have ever dealt with. The only place that they are superior in really any, any significant fashion is in the brake zone. And gentlemen drivers don't really do that well on carbon brakes. I mean, carbon brakes are tough. That's why Zanardi was shit in Formula One. He couldn't get his head around it. So to expect bronze drivers and, and silver drivers in these cars to, to be as fast as the fast guys, it's, it's a no ask. So 
again, the reduction in performance of LMP2 has brought to light a number of these issues. But as I said before, the delta between your fast driver and your gentleman driver in P3 is about three seconds a lap at Daytona. That same delta in P2 is about seven and a half seconds from your bronze driver to your platinum drivers in LMP2. So you have a massive, massive talent difference. And so, yeah, if everybody goes from LMP3 to LMP2, everybody's wishes and assumptions about LMP3 will come true because we're just going to end up in the wall here, there, and everywhere. And, you know, there is a very high probability that some of these gentlemen drivers in a P2 car would still end up holding up GTD drivers on restarts. So, again, I think getting rid of LMP3 is is unjustified, especially if the class is handled properly. Again, quality entrance, quality drivers, problems go away. Give us the tools that everybody else has, more problems go away. And I think you create more problems than you solve by removing it. And one other reason that kind of ties this whole package up with a nice bow at the top, going back to not only our, our, our car count at Daytona, but also our, our P3 count and weather tech in general is what nobody realizes is that because of IMSA's pit rules as they pertain to full course yellows if you don't have a near 50-50 split between prototype cars and GT cars the bedlam in pit lane is exacerbated because if you look at any of the pit lane assignments that IMSA's done over the years They'll go prototype GT, prototype GT, prototype GT, and they'll cycle all the way through. And if you need a sample of what disaster that would look like, is look at the last five or six pit stalls at Daytona this year with Iron Links and a couple others who were the the new to new in town uh, GTD entries. We ran out of prototypes to stagger GT prototype GT prototype. So you ended up with like yeah. five or six GT cars. Together, Well, what happens in IMSA is during a four-course yellow, we have our pit procedures where the pits open for prototype first. Well, as long as there is not a GT car in for emergency service, you've got an empty pit box behind you and in front of you. So you have clear entry in and out, guaranteed, even if every other prototype in in the race has stopped in their box as well. And then it's the same for GT, except for those five or six at the end of pit road this year where it was all GT. So when the pits open for GT cars only, all those guys come in and they end up looking like that screenshot I posted where nobody's in their box straight and nobody can get out. And then that that presents a bunch of issues with with safety and everything because now you've got up to four people per car trying to push it and maneuver it out of the way of the other ones while other guys are launching behind them and other guys are doing the same thing. So you do create unnecessary safety issues but the reality is if people want maximum car count at the 24 hours of daytona you have to have a near 50 50 split of prototype to gt cars and if you get rid of lmp3 there's no way you achieve that because we are not going to see 20 gtp cars in weather tech it's just the the market's not there for it it's not going to happen take that to the bank i'll I'll put my name on it right now we're not going to have 20 gtp cars so you do need those other lower LMP categories to even all of that out. Or the alternative is you limit the entries to like 40. So everybody has adequate pit stalls and then nobody wants that. But then you end up with the other flip side is you take LMP three away and you reduce the car count to 40. You're still going to end up with 50, 50 prototype to GT cars, but now you're turning away eight, nine, 
10, 15 GT entries that could otherwise be there because of, you know, because we didn't want to have P3 cars there and give the, the, the grid enough variety to space these, these out. And that's, that's going to be an issue with any racetrack where you've got like sub 27 foot pit boxes. You have to have the stagger or it just turns into a shit show on pit road. So, uh, you know, I, th- I think if, if LMP3 is managed right in terms of who they let in and we're given the same tools, we belong in that series as much, if not more than some of the other classes. Awesome. Frenchie, you got one more? I, I don't know. I feel uh, like right. I don't need to be convinced more about LMP3. I basically like I've heard the gospel today. <laughs> You're healed. <Cool>. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll wrap it there. Trevor, thank you very much for imparting your IMSO and LMP3 wisdom on everybody. We we won't wait another couple of years to have you back on again. Sounds and good, man, because I, I get bored really easy, you know, and it's like, uh, same. I get, I, you know, I get lonely sometimes, too. You know, it's, it's tough on the I, I get it. I so, definitely understand that. I could really use a friend. <laughs> <laughs> no, I get, like, I, I always appreciate it. It's always good conversation for you guys, and... Uh, yeah, I hope that uh, I hope I've I've positively convinced, uh, or at least given thought to yeah. the anti LMP three contingent, as well as um, you know maybe shed some light. I wouldn't call what I have to say is wisdom. Uh, it's it's more rambling than anything, but uh, you know whatever. If it's uh, if it's good it's for good. you, it's good for me, right? So yeah. Well, thank you very much, sir, and we'll wrap it there. Everybody, have a lovely weekend. Stop. Running should be simple. Just put on your shoes and go. And yet, when you try to learn about how to get better at it, especially as you age, you're confronted with conflicting advice, complicated workouts, and confusing nutrition trends that just won't work for you. On The Planted Runner, I'll share exactly how to run faster, longer, and feel great doing it at any age because you don't have time to waste. I'm Coach Claire Bartholik, and I went from not running at all in my late 30s to finishing a marathon in 2.58 at age 42, all on a plant-based diet. I've helped hundreds of runners achieve new personal records well into their 60s and even 70s with science-backed training, plant-based nutrition, and proven mental strength techniques. Each episode of The Planted Runner is like a private coaching session on the run where you'll learn from me and the guests I interview. You'll get actionable lessons to help you become a better runner every week and reach goals that you never thought possible. Whether you're training for your first 5K or your 50th marathon, take along the planted runner on your next run. Let me show you how your best running is still ahead of you. 